Welcome to A Crash Investigation, the podcast, the show where we dissect and discuss prominent crashes in aviation history. I'm your host, Jonaka Kai, and in today's episode, we are going to be discussing Eastern Airlines Flight 401. The crew, the crash, the ghosts and the conspiracies, and of course, the investigation. But before we continue, do not forget to follow us and rate us on the podcast listening platform that you're listening to us on, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and so much more. Now, as I've mentioned, we are going to be talking about conspiracy theories and ghosts, but we'll talk about that later on in the episode. Also, if you were listening to last week's episode, my voice was a little bit weird. That is because I had laryngitis. But don't worry, we're getting treatment for that and very soon we'll be a-okay. If you cared, thank you. If you don't care, I'm sorry for this detour. But without wasting any more of your time, let us officially get into it. It is the greatest aviation mystery of all time. Lies a massive passenger jet and the remains of its 239 passengers and crew. Uh, good morning. We have a uh, uh, problem. And we're doing emergency descent to level 105, uh, In December 1988, a passenger airliner was bombed over Scotland in what was one of the largest pre-9-11 terrorist attacks. Alrighty, so let's get started. Eastern Airlines Flight 401 was a scheduled flight for the 29th of December 1972. Its origin was John F. Kennedy International Airport, aka our favorite airport, New York, the United States. Its destination was Miami International Airport, Florida, the United States. The airplane used was the Lockheed L-1011-385-1 TriStar. The registration for this flight was N310EA, and finally the call sign was EAL401. The crew and passengers. The captain of this flight was Robert Albin Bob Loft, who was 55 years old at the time of the crash. He was hired by Eastern Airlines on the 20th of September 1940. He became a captain on the 8th of February 1951. In total, Captain Loft had 29,700 flight hours with 280 flight hours on the TriStar aircraft. His recent medical certificate was on the 21st of November 1972 and he only had the limitation that, and I quote, the holder shall possess correcting glasses for near vision, end quote. The first officer of this flight was Albert John Stockstill, who was 39 years old. He was hired by Eastern Airlines on the 7th of August 1959 as a flight engineer. He finally became a first officer, a.k.a. second in command, on the 1st of June 1972. He had clocked in 5,800 flight hours with 306 flight hours on the TriStar. His recent medical certificate was on the 11th of April 1972 and he had no limitations. Finally, our second officer, a.k.a. our flight engineer, was Donald A. Repo, who was 51 years old. 
He was hired by Eastern Airlines on the 11th of September 1947 as an aircraft mechanic. He finally became a flight engineer on the 19th of November 1955. He had 15,700 flight hours with 53 flight hours on the TriStar. His recent medical certificate was on the 10th of August 1972 and he only had the limitation that, and I quote, the holder shall possess correcting classes for near vision, end quote. In total, there were 163 passengers and 10 flight attendants. The aircraft information. So the airplane that was used was the Lockheed L-1011-385-1 TriStar. That is a mouthful. But in total, this aircraft had 936 hours of operation. It had 85,000 pounds or 38,555 kgs worth of fuel on the aircraft so that they could go to Miami International Airport. And this flight only needed 42,000 pounds or 19,051 kgs worth of fuel to go to Miami International Airport. So the flight, the time zone that was used was Eastern Standard Time or EST, so please do not get confused. At 20 minutes past 9 p.m., Eastern Airlines Flight 401 takes off from JFK International Airport. The pilot flying at this point was First Officer Stockstill. They had to fly using Instrument Flight Rules or IFR. Instrument Flight Rules is when a pilot or a flight is instructed to fly only using their instruments and not flying using their visuals. Here I'm quoting from the final report. The flight was uneventful until the approach to Miami International Airport. End quote. So at this point, the crew was preparing for landing and they were told to land on runway 9L or 9 left. As a result of their preparation, they dropped the landing gear. When the landing gear is dropped, a green light is supposed to shine in the cockpit to basically signify that the landing gear is down, it's locked, it's safe. However, this did not happen on this flight and at 26 minutes to 12 a.m., I'm sure you can hear like an aeroplane just like deciding to fly over here. How ironic. Moving on, at 26 minutes to 12 a.m. 5 seconds, the crew told Miami International Airport's air traffic controller that, and I quote, uh, Tower, this is Eastern uh, 401. It looks like we're going to have to circle. We don't have a light on our nose gear yet, end quote. At 26 minutes to 12 a.m. 14 seconds, the Miami International Airport air traffic controller responds by saying, and I quote, Eastern 401 Heavy Raja, pull up, climb straight ahead 2,000 or 610 meters, go back to approach control 128.6, end quote. Then at 26 minutes to 12 a.m. 21 seconds, the crew acknowledges this instruction by saying, and I quote, Okay, going up to 2,000 or 610 meters, 128.6, end quote. At 25 minutes to 12 a.m., 9 seconds, Eastern Airlines Flight 401 contacts the Miami Air Traffic Controller again to tell them that, and I quote, All right, uh, approach control, Eastern 401, we ride over the airport here and climbing to 2,000 feet, a.k.a. 610 meters. In fact, we've just reached 2,000 feet or 610 meters and we've got to get a green light on our nose gear, end quote. At 25 minutes to 12 a.m. 20 seconds, the Miami Air Traffic Controller acknowledges this and, and I quote, instructed 
EAL401 to maintain 2,000 feet or 610 meters, mean sea level and turn to a heading of 360 degrees magnetic. The new heading was acknowledged by EAL401 at 25 minutes to 12 a.m. 28 seconds, end quote. At 24 minutes to 12 a.m. 4 seconds, first officer stock still engages the autopilot. At 24 minutes to 12 a.m. 27 seconds, the Miami Air Traffic Controller instructed, and I quote, Eastern 401, turn left heading 300, end quote. The pilots of Eastern Airlines Flight 401 acknowledges this request. The crew was still worried about the landing gear, specifically the nose landing gear. Therefore, First Officer Stockstill decides to remove the nose gear light assembly. He then tries to replace it and then it got jammed. Therefore, at 23 minutes to 12 a.m. 8 seconds, Flight Engineer Repo is instructed, and I quote, to enter the forward electronics bay below the flight deck to check visually the alignment of the nose gear indices, end quote. At 22 minutes to 12 a.m. 46 seconds, the crew contacts the Miami aircraft controller to tell them that, and I quote, Eastern 401 will go um, out west just a little further if we can here and uh, see if we can get this light to come on here, end quote. The Miami air traffic controller has no choice but to acknowledge this. From 22 minutes to 12 a.m. 56 seconds to 19 minutes to 12 a.m. 5 seconds, and I quote, the captain and first officer discussed the faulty nose gear position light lens assembly and how it might have been reinserted incorrectly. At 20 minutes to 12 a.m. 38 seconds, a half-second C chord, which indicated a deviation of plus minus 250 feet or 76 meters from the selected altitude sounded in the cockpit. No crew member commented on the C chord. No pitch change to correct for the loss of altitude was recorded. End quote. This is a red flag. This is our first official red flag of this episode. Anyway, at 19 minutes to 12 a.m., Flight Engineer Repo stated whilst in the electronics bay that, and I quote, I can't see it. It's pitch dark and I throw the little light. I get uh, nothing, end quote. As you can hear, they are focusing on the nose landing gear and no one is paying attention to their instruments. Moving on, an Eastern Airlines maintenance specialist was instructed to go to the electronics bay to help Flight Engineer Repo see whether or not the landing gear was locked securely. At 19 minutes 12 a.m. 40 seconds, the Miami Air Traffic Controller contacts the crew to ask, and I quote, Eastern uh, 401, how are things coming along out there? End quote. Now I'm quoting from the final report. This query was made a few seconds after the Miami Air Traffic Controller noted an altitude reading of 900 feet or 274 meters in the EAL401 alphanumeric data block on his radar display. The controller testified that he contacted EAL401 because the flight was nearing the airspace boundary within his jurisdiction. He further stated that he had no doubt at that moment about the safety of the aircraft. Momentary deviations in altitude information on the radar display, he said, are not uncommon, and more than one scan on the display would be required to verify a deviation requiring controller action, end quote. So at 19 minutes to 12 a.m. 44 seconds, the crew replied to Miami Air Traffic Control to say, and I quote, okay, we'd like to turn around and come, come back in, end quote. 
At 19 minutes to 12 a.m. 47 seconds, the Miami Air Traffic Controller responds by saying, and I quote, Eastern 401, turn left heading 180, end quote. The crew of Eastern Airlines Flight 401 initiates the turn. At 18 minutes to 12 a.m. 5 seconds, First Officer Stockstill announces, and I quote, we did something to the altitude, end quote. Captain Loft responds by saying, and I quote, what? First Officer Stockstill then says, we are still at 2,000, right? 2,000 feet being 610 meters. Captain Loft shouts and he says, hey, what's happening here? End quote. At 18 minutes to 12 a.m. 10 seconds, the radio altimeter warning starts sounding. At 18 minutes to 12 a.m. 12 seconds, the TriStar aircraft begins a left bank of 28 degrees. At 18 minutes to 12 a.m. 12 seconds, Eastern Airlines Flight 401 crashes into the Everglades, which is about 18,7 miles or 30,1 kilometers away from runway 9L or 9 left. The plane speed at this point was 227 miles per hour, 365 kilometers an hour, or 197 knots. 99 people were killed, including Captain Loft and First Officer Stockstill, and two more people succumbed to their injuries, making the total people who died on this aeroplane being 101. So the investigation, the National Transportation Safety Board, or the NTSB was in charge of investigating this crash because it happened on American soil. So the wreckage, this is very long, so I hope you're ready. Here we go, and I quote. The terrain in the impact area was flat marshland covered with soft mud under 6 to 12 inches or 15 to 30 centimeters of water. The elevation at the accident site was approximately 8 feet or 2 meters above sea level. The left outer wing structure impacted the ground first, the number one engine, and then the left main landing gear followed immediately. The aircraft disintegrated, scattering wreckage over an area approximately 1,600 feet or 488 meters long and 300 feet or 91 meters wide. The entire left wing and left stabilizer were demolished. No evidence of in-flight structural failure, fire, or explosion was found. The primary flight control positions were recorded, however, by the flight data recorder FDR. These data show that the control columns were in an aircraft nose-up position. The FDR record depicts the spoiler positions as retracted. The three intact spoilers on the remains of the right wing were found by inspection to be retracted. The wing flap lever in the cockpit was set at 18 degrees flap extension and the extension of the inboard jack screw on the inboard section of the right wing flap corresponded with that setting, end quote. The crew was also talking about a landing gear problem. Here we go and I quote. The landing gear lever was in the gear down position. The right main landing gear which remained in place was down and locked. The left main landing gear and nose landing gear along with portions of the attached structure were separate from the aeroplane and were extensively damaged. The nose gear down and locked visual indicator sight and nose wheel well service light assembly were both in place and operative. The nose gear warning light lens assembly was jammed in a position that was 90 degrees clockwise to and protruding a quarter of an inch from its normal position. Both bulbs in the unit were burnt out, end quote.
Now, finally, this is just going to discuss whether or not there was a fire on board. Here we go, and I quote, There was no evidence of in-flight fire or explosion. After impact, a flash fire developed from sprayed fuel. Some of the burning fuel penetrated the cabin area, causing 14 passengers to suffer various degrees of burns on exposed body surfaces, end quote, meaning that an in-flight fire did not cause the crash. So the meteorological information. Here we go, and I quote, at Miami International Airport. At 10 minutes to 12 a.m., 2,500 feet or 762 meters scattered, visibility 10 miles, 16 kilometers or 9 knots, temperature 72 degrees Fahrenheit or 22 degrees Celsius, dew point 59 degrees Fahrenheit or 15 degrees Celsius, wind 080 degrees at 8 knots or 15 kilometers an hour or 9 miles per hour, altimeter setting 30,19 inches or 77 centimeters, end quote. So the several tests and the research. On the 7th of January 1973, tests were conducted on the flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder data of the Lockheed Rice Star. The conclusions were, and I quote, number one, the accident flight path was consistent with the established aerodynamic characteristics of the L1011. Number two, the autopilot was engaged at various times during the flight and was in the control wheel steering, aka CWS, pitch mode during the last 288 seconds of the flight. Number three, the auto throttle system was not in use during the final descent. End quote. Many more tests were done, but it was concluded that mechanical error was not necessarily the cause of the crash. So what was the cause of the crash? You guessed it, pilot error. So here I'm going to read from the final report. Here we go, and I quote, Pilot's testimony indicated that dependence on the reliability and capability of the autopilot is actually greater than anticipated in its early design and its certification. This is particularly true in the cruise phase of the flight. However, in this phase of flight, the autopilot is not designed to remain correctly and safely operational without performance degradation after a significant failure occurs, end quote. Please keep this at the back of your head as we move on, but this is a red flag, this is our second red flag of this episode. And I quote, the board is aware of the distractions that can interrupt the routine of flight. Such distractions usually do not affect other flight requirements because of their short duration or their routine integration into the flying task. However, the following took place in this accident. Here we go. Number one, the approach and landing routine was interrupted by an abnormal gear indication, meaning that the green light wasn't functioning properly. Number two, the aircraft was flown to a safe altitude and the autopilot was engaged to reduce workload but positive delegation of aircraft control was not accomplished. Red flag number three. Number three, the nose gear position light lens assembly was removed and incorrectly reinstalled. So, number four, the first officer, aka first officer Stockstill, became preoccupied with his attempts to remove the jammed light assembly. Number five, the captain, a.k.a. Captain Loft, divided his attention between attempts to help the first officer, a.k.a. First Officer Stockstill, and orders to other crew members to try other approaches to the problem. End quote. 
And here, this is what I am adding. The flight engineer, aka flight engineer repo, was in the electronics bay. Therefore, no one was quote-unquote in charge of flying the plane, which therefore results in pilot error. Here are the findings according to the final report. Number one, the crew was trained, qualified, and certificated for the operation. Number two, the aircraft was certificated, equipped, and maintained in accordance with applicable regulations. Number three, there was no failure or malfunction of the structure, power plant systems, or components of the aircraft before impact except that both bulbs in the nose landing gear position indicating system were burnt out. Number four, the three flight crew members were preoccupied in an attempt to ascertain the position of the nose landing gear. Number five, the flight crew did not hear the oral altitude alert which sounded as the aircraft descended through 1,750 feet or 533 meters mean sea level. Number six, the flight crew did not monitor the flight instruments during the final descent until seconds before impact. And finally, number seven, the captain failed to assure that a pilot was monitoring the progress of the aircraft at all times. So the probable cause of the crash. Here we go and I quote. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the failure of the flight crew to monitor the flight instruments during the final four minutes of flight and to detect an unexpected descent soon enough to prevent impact with the ground. Preoccupation with a malfunction of the nose landing gear position indicating system distracted the crew's attention from the instruments and allowed the descent to go unnoticed, end quote, aka pilot error. So before we go to the recommendations, I did promise you a portion of this episode would be about the conspiracy theories surrounding this flight. This is the first episode that I've ever done that actually has some conspiracy theories to it, so it was pretty interesting. To read about so here i'm quoting from ozy.com or ozzy.com here we go and i quote in early 1973 the captain of an eastern airlines flight from newark new jersey to miami was asked to check on a passenger in first class the passenger in question was another eastern pilot apparently deadheading or flying home off the clock who wasn't listed on the flight manifest. The men dressed in full captain's uniform hadn't responded to the questions of the senior flight attendant. He was just staring straight ahead as if in a daze. When the captain approached the passenger, he exclaimed, You won't believe this. My God, it's Bob Loft. End quote. There was just one problem. Bob Loft had been dead for months. Now this is very, very creepy to say the least, but I'm not done. Over the next year and a half, numerous Eastern employees reported seeing the ghosts of Repo, aka Flight Engineer Repo, and Captain Loft on other Eastern flights. Flight attendants claimed to have seen Repo's reflection in an oven door in the galley. An attendant on another New York-Miami flight opened an overhead bin to see Loft's face staring back at her. An entire Eastern cockpit crew saw Repo sitting among them on another flight. They claimed the dead man warned them about a faulty electrical circuit which was found and repaired. Even an Eastern vice president saw a loft on a plane preparing to take off from JFK. End quote. Many were very, very scared to go on an Eastern Airlines jet. Of course, who wouldn't be? 
I'd be scared, you would be scared too. And Ryan Sprague, who is or was the co-host of Somewhere in the Skies podcast and Mysteries Decoded, actually said, and I quote, I do tend to believe most of the ghost stories related to Flight 401 because they seem very simple and innocent. These aren't evil spirits trying to torment passengers or witnesses. They are merely trying to find any way to connect or communicate with us through the only things they have in common with us, the stories they left behind. End quote. Not gonna lie, I am a huge fan of conspiracy theories, and this is a good conspiracy theory, and I actually kind of believe it to be true. It's kind of fun, and it's spooky, and... Due to these conspiracy theories, Eastern Airlines just did not do well. They could not recover from the accident itself and all of these ghost sightings. So, the recommendations set out by the NTSB. Here we go, and I quote, The Safety Board recommends that the Federal Aviation Administration, number one, require the installation of a switch for the L-1011 nose wheel well light near the nose gear indicator optical site. Number two, require near the optical site the installation of a placard which explains the use of the system. And number three, take the necessary steps to ensure that all a carrier before landing and takeoff checklist contain a, and I quote, fastened shoulder harness, end quote, item, end quote. At the end of the day, this is today's episode. I really do hope that you enjoyed it, to be honest with you. Hopefully my voice is not bad, but this is honestly one of the cases or one of the crashes that I've ever discussed that I actually delved into due to this aspect of having a ghost, which is kind of cool to hear because we never hear that, especially about plane crashes and the fact that more than one person saw a ghost on an airplane that is actually kind of cool and it's kind of sad that Eastern Airlines had to suffer in that way, but... Hopefully we get another story that has a ghost because I really do want to talk about that one next. Either way, thank you so much for listening. I've been your host, Shonaka Kai. Don't forget to follow us and rate us on the platform that you're listening to us on. And I'll catch you in the next one next week, Saturday at half past four Central African time. What's the African Standard Time? And I'll catch you in the next one. Cheers.